choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero J, and I feel fine. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 113 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo, Command Module Design and Development, 1963 through 64. Before we begin with the command module, I want to cover some additional information about NASA headquarters' role in the Apollo program that did not make it into last week's episode. So this is a little bit of a continuation for episode 112. Perhaps the headquarters' action that had the most significant effect on Apollo was a change of leadership in the Office of Manned Spaceflight. You may recall when NASA signed Grumman in 1962 to develop the lunar module, Brainerd Holmes wanted the agency to ask for a supplemental appropriation for Gemini and Apollo cost. But NASA's top administrators, that would be Webb, Dryden, and Siemens, refused. Webb also refused to transfer funds from other programs to manned spaceflight. Holmes and Webb had different views of management and methods and of the priority of the manned program versus the rest of the space effort. The administrator, Webb, feared an all-out effort to land a man on the moon would subordinate all other programs and thus endanger NASA's balanced program of seeking U.S. preeminence in space science and technology. Manned Spaceflight Director Holmes felt he had an overriding mandate from the President to win a race to the moon. The question of funds and priorities was taken to the White House. When President Kennedy cited the importance of the lunar landing, Webb agreed that it was important, but said that he would not take responsibility for a program that was not properly balanced. Kennedy accepted his position. Then, in the first half of 1963, came the realization that Project Gemini was suffering from more technical troubles than had been anticipated, which would push the cost of that program past the billion-dollar level, which was almost double the original estimates. Jiminy schedule delays followed. At the March 1963 Congressional Authorization Hearings, Holmes testified that NASA administrators' refusal to ask for supplemental appropriation had delayed the Jiminy and Apollo programs four or five months. In the renewal of the Holmes-Webb differences over priorities, the President again backed his space program administrator, Webb. Shortly thereafter, NASA announced that Holmes was returning to industry. 
In a move to concentrate resources on resolving Gemini and Apollo programs, Administrator Webb decided to end the Mercury program after the ninth mission and to realign the NASA organization throughout headquarters and the responsive field center elements. One of the first requirements was to find a leader for manned space flight. After considering several candidates, Webb asked Reuben F. Mettler, the president of Space Technology Laboratories, Inc., to come and take the job. Mettler refused, but recommended George E. Miller, his vice president for research and development. Webb accepted this recommendation, and Miller became NASA's associate administrator for manned space flight. With a doctorate in physics from Ohio State and 23 years of academic and industrial experience, Miller had already made many contributions to the country's missile and space program. Miller worked on Air Force manned spaceflight studies as early as 1958. Later, his laboratory had provided NASA with data that helped in making the Apollo mode decision. Furthermore, Miller was familiar with NASA's relationship with industry, both at headquarters and the field centers, and he had studied ground support equipment problems and tracking network issues as a system analysis contractor. But most useful to NASA was his recent work with the Air Force on performance, schedule, and budget constraints for the Minuteman missile. Miller used this experience to strengthen headquarters and field center control over cost, configuration, and schedules for Apollo. Soon after joining NASA, Miller asked Air Force Brigadier General Samuel C. Phillips to help him apply to Apollo the kind of configuration and logistics management procedures established for Minuteman. Phillips brought with him about 20 officers to fill key positions. Miller realized that this sudden infusion of headquarters-level personnel might be detrimental to relationship between his office and the field activities. To forestall any resentment, he invited Center Directors Gilruth, Von Braun, and Kurt DeBoos to be his house guests to get to know them informally and to discuss with them his plans for Apollo. Miller then visited Huntsville, Houston, and Canaveral. After completing the circuit, he began pressuring the field elements to conform to a long-range plan of program management. In Miller's attempt to inaugurate effective headquarters control of Apollo, he still faced vestiges of field center autonomy. The inter-center groups had gone far in working out system specifications and planning for vehicle integration, but in Miller's view, they had not gone far enough. To get to the moon by the set time, he told Von Braun, Gilruth, and DeBoos, headquarters would have to take final authority in administrating a unified and coordinated plan of program control. Miller decided to make some changes in one management tool instituted by Holmes in late 61. In a meeting of the Manned Space Flight Management Council in September of 1963, Miller said that too many people were on the council and that it would henceforth be composed only of himself, Von Braun, Gilruth, and DeBuse. 
This new slim-down body would act as a board of directors in making decisions and managing Apollo and would expect to be frequently and thoroughly briefed on all Apollo matters down to the nuts and bolts by the top technical managers. To make sure that the industrial leaders in the program were kept abreast of progress and problems, Miller also intended to form an Apollo Executives Committee of company presidents which would tour the appropriate NASA facilities and then hold periodic reviews thereafter. These men, Mueller knew, could put pressure on their people to solve any development problems. Webb, Dryden, and Seaman recognized in mid-1963 that NASA and Apollo had grown too large for Siemens to continue as operating vice president, which he had been since 1961. They decided to give Siemens three associate administrators for specific activities. Miller would manage the Office of Manned Spaceflight and the three centers working on manned missions, Huntsville, Houston, and Canaveral. Homer Newell and Raymond L. Bischlingoff would hold similar positions for Office of Space Science and Applications and the Office of Advanced Research and Technology. Miller revamped his own office, dividing it into five sub-offices. First, Program Control. Second, Systems Engineering. Third, Test. Fourth, Flight Operations. And fifth, Reliability and Quality for each major program. Miller kept the job of acting Apollo manager for himself and gave Gemini responsibility to Lowe. The manned spacecraft centers were directed to organize their program offices accordingly. While the reorganization was going on, Miller asked two veterans in his office, John Disher and Adelbert Tischler, for a study of Apollo's chances of landing on the moon by 1970. From the information they gathered on the existing technical problems, Disher and Tischler concluded that prospects were only 1 in 10. After reading this pessimistic report, Miller knew the adverse schedule trend would have to be reversed. When MSC Director Gilruth sent a representative to headquarters in late September to find out if the four manned Saturn I flights Washington had planned could be reduced to three, Miller saw an opportunity to begin tightening the schedules. He reviewed a Bellcom study that recommended terminating the Saturn I launch vehicle program after the 10th flight, which Marshall estimated would save $280 million, and concluded that there was no reason to fly any manned Saturn I vehicles. Ironically, NASA had just selected 14 new pilots, bringing core strength to 30. Administrator Webb worried briefly that the astronauts might not get enough spaceflight experience with the cutback, but Miller reminded him that Gemini would fill that gap. Miller also added that there was a much better chance of beating the deadline if NASA had to man-rate only two boosters, the Saturn 1B and the Saturn V, instead of three. Immediately after the Saturn I decision came another pronouncement that was just as startling. 
At a late October meeting of the Management Council, Miller told DeBoos, Von Braun, and Gilruth that they could now end the step-by-step procedure of flight testing. All parts of the spacecraft and launch vehicle would be developed and thoroughly tested at manufacturing plants and test sites before being delivered to the Cape as ready-to-fly hardware. There would no longer be any need for a piece-by-piece, stage-by-stage qualification flights of any of the vehicles. Each launch was to be prepared as though it were the ultimate mission. Although the chances for getting to the moon within the allotted time may have improved, Apollo now had more launch vehicles and launch pads than were needed to do the job. When contracts were awarded from late 1961 through 1962, step-by-step testing had been the norm. Hardware was purchased and facilities were built to carry out this time-tested practice. Miller's decision changed the rules, limited the number of Saturn I launches, and made it likely that not all of the Saturn I-Bs contracted for would be flown in mainline Apollo. Later, NASA had to figure out how to use these excessive vehicles, eventually assigning them to Skylab and Apollo Soyuz. But this did not worry Miller in late 1963. His job was to figure out how to get men on the moon within the time set by President Kennedy. Okay, let's move on to the command module. The lateness of the mode decision forced the Manned Spacecraft Center and the contractor, North American, to delay work on the command and surface modules. Once the choice was made, they realized that much of what had been done had no place in lunar orbit rendezvous mode. But that was not the only problem. NASA still insisted on having an Earth orbital command module to train crews and flight controllers in the basic functions of the spacecraft, even though it could not dock with the lunar module. The definitive contract for the spacecraft, however, had not been negotiated. In late 1961, NASA issued a letter contract to North American, which would be extended as necessary, outlining in general terms what the spacecraft would be like. Now that all of Apollo's pieces were finally picked, it was time to reach an agreement with North American on the precise details of the spacecraft. Charles Frick, the Apollo manager in Houston, assigned his special assistant, Thomas Markley, to negotiate the definitive contract with North American and its principal contractors. When deliberations started on January 7, 1963, the Manned Spacecraft Center was facing crowded conditions in its temporary locations along the Gulf Freeway. Markley and his government team, therefore, met the contract representatives in 16 rooms on the 13th floor of the Rice Hotel in downtown Houston. Now here's something a little unusual. A cowbell was used to signal the start and finish of 15-hour workdays, Monday through Saturday. Markley and the groups completed the basic contract package on January 26th. The proposed contract then had to travel through administrative levels until it reached Administrator Webb for final approval or 
refusal. As the document journeyed through the channels, the cost figures on the subsystems were revised. On June 24th, the estimated value was $889 million without the engineering fee. When it was finally approved in August, the price with $50 million engineering fee was $934 million. For this sum, NASA was to receive 11 mock-ups, 15 boilerplate capsules, and 11 flight-ready spacecrafts. Now, under the letter contract, many of these items had gone into the manufacturing cycle with scheduled delivery dates. Immediately after contract approval, Miller sent his two deputies, Lowe and Shea, to Downey, California to find out why North American was late on those deliveries. Harrison Storms, president of the division building the command module, briefed the visitors on the problems and admitted to a 10-month slip in schedule for the first command module earmarked for orbital flight. Storms counterattacked, however, reminding the NASA customers that some of their decisions had been late in coming and that orders to change some of the subsystems had slowed factory schedules and were still doing so. Another item changed Apollo manufacturing plans in Downey. NASA officials learned that North American intended to build the spacecraft's lunar module adapter in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Air Force had decided to cancel the Skybolt missile development program and to keep using the Hound Dog missile, which was manufactured in Downey. When the Air Force ordered more Hound Dog vehicles and demanded that production in Downey continue, some Apollo work had to be done elsewhere. One of the chief aims of the 1963 through 64 period was to get both versions of the command module far enough along for a formal mock-up review board to accept them as the final configuration. With a great deal of this work being done simultaneously, the task was extremely onerous. John Pulp, command module manager at North American, who had fretted over the slowness of the mode decision, wanted to get the systems of the Earth Orbit Block 1 spacecraft set so he could begin production on that vehicle. At the same time, he was anxious to get the exact differences between the two vehicles delineated. Joseph Shea, who had by now replaced Frick as Apollo manager in Houston, told Pulp that Block 2 definition was not going to be easy to arrive at, with the Block 1 configuration still not settled. Pulp continued that several areas of common interest between the two vehicles had to be resolved immediately. One of the debates was whether to use strakes, tower flaps, or canards to stabilize the command module in the event of a launch abort. Whichever was used, the object was to get the spacecraft down in what was called the blunt end forward position. Strakes were semicircular devices near the top of the heat shield that would keep the vehicle from landing on its nose. Recent changes in the subsystems had shifted the vehicle's center of gravity, which forced a lengthening of the strakes to handle the aerodynamic change. 
After heat-resisting ablative material was added to the longer strakes, however, they weighed too much. Remember, for every one pound added to the spacecraft, 80 pounds of thrust was required. North Americans suggested using either tower flaps, fixed surface near the top of the launch escape tower, or canards, deployable surfaces on the forward end of the escape rocket motor. Pulp wanted to know which to install, and Shea told him to put canards on block one and then look for some way to eliminate all these devices on block two. Another decision that would influence both spacecraft was on whether to set the vehicle down on land or water, a question that had been under discussion since mid-1962. Mercury had proved that one could successfully parachute a capsule into the sea, but the naval recovery operation was dangerous and unwieldy. However, at the same time, the Russians had been landing their cosmonauts on land without a hitch. So, North American was originally told to design for a land recovery. But, after struggling with some success to solve the problem of a landing on dry ground, NASA planners began to realize that they had wandered into a political minefield. The question in Washington was whose dry ground would they land on? Lyndon Johnson favored Texas. He even generously offered his own ranch. All of a sudden, a water landing started looking more attractive to Webb and his colleagues. But, at the same time, North American had come to realize that there were too many variables in landing on hard ground. It was fine in the desert, or a wheat field, but what if the thing missed the landing site and came down in the Rockies? The problem was not so much the exterior structure, but with all that hardware inside that could break loose and bounce around like shrapnel. When North American engineers told Joe Shea they couldn't guarantee a safe landing unless the capsule came down on reasonably even terrain, the agency ordered a switch to water recovery. There was no doubt the command module could handle a landing at sea under normal conditions. The technicians had tested it and the thing had come through with flying colors. But if a water landing was to be the primary recovery mode, that meant the capsule would have to survive anything the ocean could come up with. In towering waves, there was no way to guarantee the base of the cone would strike edge on. Also, the capsule had to have enough margin to survive even if it lost one parachute, which meant it could be barreling in at 35 feet a second. The worst-case scenario from a structural viewpoint would be for the dish-shaped bottom of the command module to hit an oncoming swell absolutely flat. Up until now, Nobody had run any impact studies of a big, nearly flat surface hitting the water with that kind of force. So the structural engineers decided to take the design as it existed and subject it to the worst-case landing and see what kind of safety margins they had. The giant trapeze known as the Impact Test Facility was the tallest object east of downtown L.A., 
It had a pair of spidery A-frames rising 15 stories from the parking lot behind the main plant. Suspended from the apex of the towers, a swinging platform carried a boilerplate model of the command module out over a field of boulders on one side or a pool of water on the other, then dropped it like a bomb. For the worst-case impact test, the testers used a boilerplate model covered with strain gauges and accelerometers, and they strapped three dummies into the couches with a high-speed camera looking down on them. Now, an impact test was a big deal at Downey, and by the time the warning horn sounded a few minutes before 5 p.m. that summer evening, dozens of people had gathered around the pool. Charlie Feltz was there. He was now the deputy program manager, along with his new chief engineer, Gary Osborne. Standing with Osborne was a few of the astronauts, Alan Shepard among them. As the seconds ticked away, the spectators craned their necks up at the command module. On signal, it swung gracefully out over the pond, dropped like a rock, and thudded into the water belly first. When the mist cleared, everyone applauded. Then, with a burble, the thing sank out of sight. For several seconds, there was no sound but the lapping waves. Finally, Alan Shepard turned to Gary Osborne and said, Well, it's back to the old drawing board, isn't it? The camera footage from inside the command module was even more horrifying. The floor seemed to implode, and the dummies were thrown from their couches as the flood engulfed them. Work on the capsule now had to be stopped until they found the scope of the problem. Fortunately, the capsule had been heavily instrumented, so it was a simple matter to figure out the propagation of the failure and how the ship came apart. But that was least of the problems. The designers wouldn't be able to fix the structure simply by beefing it up because they couldn't afford the weight. It would have to be a new approach. The equation used to calculate the impact loads had eight different variables. The height of the waves, the speed of the waves, the speed of the command module, the angle of contact, and so on. And it was now clear that if they designed for the absolute worst case, they would never get it off the ground. So, they put the equation into a computer and subjected it to a Monte Carlo routine, which was a roulette-style run where all eight variables were changed at random. They ran the program a million times, and the calculated loads were plotted on the graph. The vast majority of the data points fell within the reach of their capabilities, but out at the end of the graph were a handful of dots that were quite extreme. Since a few failures in a million were acceptable odds, they drew the line short of these dots, and that was the number they designed for. Sixty days later, they staged an identical drop test, and by now the crowd had grown considerably. This time, when the mist cleared, the command module was still afloat. To the unpracticed eye, 
The structural changes inside the capsule would have been impossible to detect, but the ship was now capable of withstanding an impact of 78 times the force of gravity. The schedule, however, had taken an eight-week hit. In addition to the normal development nightmares, there were a couple of cosmic imponderables hovering over the designers that threatened to bring the whole program to a grinding halt at any moment. The most troublesome item on everybody's list was the problem of micrometeoroids, those little grains of sand zipping through the void at velocities in excess of 10 miles a second. If the spacecraft collided with one of these particles and it punctured the pressure hull, it could mean instant death for the astronauts. Astronomers estimate that 25 million shooting stars flash through the atmosphere every day. This sobering fact plagued the Apollo designers because it meant that translunar space was probably full of high-velocity shrapnel. Since nobody really knew how bad the problem was, anxiety about micrometeoroids got steadily worse. Charlie Phelps and his people finally had to face the fact that they might have to armor plate the spacecraft. To see what kind of protection would be needed, they turned to a small lab up the coast near Santa Barbara that was run by General Motors. GM had an electromagnetic cannon with a muzzle velocity of 70,000 feet per second, and the North American team used this gun to fire particles the size of a cigarette ash at various samples of material. Meanwhile, the designers were talking to weapons experts about the science of armor plating. The results confirmed their worst fears. Micrometeoroid protection for the spacecraft was going to add a lot of weight. The fact that it might add enough weight to cancel the program loomed as a significant threat at the end of 1963. Then, a couple of scientists named Watkins and Summers entered the scene. Watkins was an astronomer who had a collection of data about micrometeoroids going back to Galileo, and Summers was a mathematician from MIT. They pointed out that while it is true there are a lot of micrometeoroids out there, space is a very big place. They noted that even in an intense meteor shower, the tiny particles were typically 50 or 100 miles apart. Their study showed that if you use a little common sense, like not launching on August 11th when the Earth's orbit passes through the Perseid meteor shower, the chance of the spacecraft getting hit by anything big enough to do any damage was less than 1 in 1,000. These low numbers were confirmed a few months later when NASA lofted a micrometeoroid detector on one of the early Saturn test vehicles. But just to be on the safe side, the designers came up with an emergency system that could repressurize the cockpit for three minutes, even if the hull had a hole in it the size of a nickel. That was time enough for the astronauts to get into their spacesuits. 
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.